0: A while back, I asked a young man to come help me move some furniture in my house. Since we'd not met before, I asked him what he was studying at college. He said he was majoring in computer science and minoring in philosophy, but he said, philosophy was his passion. It was just that his parents wouldn't pay for his degree if he majored in it. STEM degrees are often held up as the ideal career path of choice for those seeking stability, financial success, and a higher run on the ladder of social prestige. Not all of those who pursue a STEM degree and enter the scientific and technological fields find the stability or the fulfillment they hoped for. Recent studies show that around 30% of those graduating with STEM degrees either never use them or leave their fields within 10 years. My colleague Dan Cox and I published an AEI report last month on outcomes for STEM workers where we found both expected and unexpected results. While STEM workers were generally enthusiastic about their jobs, there were some unexpected downsides. Women and racial and ethnic minorities, we found, experienced a less welcoming atmosphere in STEM careers and perceived many obstacles, a view that wasn't shared by their white and male colleagues who dominate STEM occupations and didn't see women and minorities as facing more obstacles. We also found that associate's degrees don't provide the same long-term economic payoff as many think they do, creating question marks for the value of career and technical education compared to bachelor's degrees. Dan and I discussed these findings and others in a recent webinar we hosted with Audrey van Bellingham, the business lead at Facebook, and Nicole Turner-Lee, the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Brookings Institution. The following audio is a recording of that event. Good afternoon. My name is Brent Orell, and I'm a resident here at the American Enterprise Institute, where my research focuses on job training, workforce development, and criminal justice reform. It's my pleasure to welcome you for what I think is going to be a fascinating panel on our recently published survey of individuals with degrees in science, technology, engineering, and math, the so-called STEM occupations. For anyone in the audience who isn't familiar with the work of AEI, we are a nonpartisan center-right think tank that supports scholars conducting research in a broad range of domestic national security, foreign policy, and economic policy questions. We operate under the principle of academic freedom that permits and encourages our scholars to pursue high quality, fact based inquiry, free from pressures to conform to any external ideological agenda, and based on the principle that a competition of ideas is fundamental to a free society. Before I introduce my colleagues and fellow panelists, I wanted to take a minute to provide some background on why we conducted this survey, which we call STEM Perspectives aptitudes, opportunities, and barriers in America's STEM workforce. Almost two years ago, data began emerging from two researchers at Harvard University, Dr. David Deming and his colleague, Kadim Nore, about some interesting trends in economic returns to labor market skills. To summarize this briefly, the deming nore research shows that the highest rates of return are so-called non-cognitive skills, which are also sometimes called soft skills, professional skills, or as I call them, implicit skills. Technical skills, like those acquired through STEM training, are also valuable. But unlike non-cognitive skills, they are subject to decay and obsolescence driven by technological change. Additional research found that large numbers, as much as 40%, of individuals with STEM degrees never ended up in a STEM field among those who receive STEM degrees and work in STEM occupations, about 30% leave the STEM field within 10 years. For me, these findings raised a number of questions. Are we overemphasizing STEM education and pushing students into fields for which they lack a deep long-term interest and ability? How do individuals who work or who have worked in STEM see the relationship between technical and non-technical skills like communication, Critical thinking, and management? And how do these non technical skills influence career longevity and trajectory? And perhaps most importantly, what sorts of working conditions might be leading those with STEM degrees to withdraw from STEM careers and seek new professions? To help us explore these issues today, I'm joined by my co author, Daniel Cox, who leads AEI's Domestic Policy Survey Research Program. Dan will be providing us with an overview of the key findings from the report. We will also hear from Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee of the Brookings Institution, who is a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and the Director of the Brookings Center for Technology and Innovation. She also is the co-editor-in-chief of TechTank, a blog that focuses on new developments in science and technology policy and how they affect healthcare, education, economic development, innovation, and governance. Dr. Turner-Lee graduated from Colgate University with a magna cum laude and has an MA and PhD in sociology from Northwestern University. She also holds a certificate in nonprofit management from the University of Illinois, Chicago. We're also joined by Audrey Van Belnem, who serves as business lead in Facebook's infrastructure group, managing the execution of complex cross-functional operations and programs. One of the strategic initiatives she supports is Facebook's return to work program a 16-week immersive program designed for people who have been away from work for two years or longer and are looking to reenter the workforce full-time. Ms. Van Bellingham has been named a woman of influence by the Silicon Valley Business Journal and has been recognized by the U.S. Department of State as a technical mentor to women in the Middle East and North Africa. She holds a bachelor's degree of science in electrical engineering from UCLA and a master's of business administration from the Haas School of Business, University of California, Berkeley. I think this will be a stimulating conversation about a critical industry and its workforce. I hope you'll stay with us to the end of the program, where we'll have an opportunity for the audience to have a dialogue with our panel. And now I'd like to turn it over to Daniel Cox, who's going to walk us through the key findings from STEM perspectives.
1: Thanks, Brent. So we've already, I think, covered at this point why we did it. So I'm going to dive into what we did and how we did it to start off. A bit of background about the survey that we conducted. It's a national random sample of around 1,400 adults age 18 or older who had associate's degrees or, or higher, who self-reported that their degree was in science, technology, engineering, or math, STEM, and they lived in the United States. The field date for the survey was about last year, early August to mid-August. And the interviews were conducted through an online panel using IPSO's web-enabled knowledge panel, a probability-based panel that's designed to be representative of the population. I won't go too much into the weighting, but we you know, did pretty consistent weighting for the surveys as done sort of by large for national size of this sort. So weighting on age, race, education, and other important demographic factors. The margin of error for the survey is about three percentage points. Another important thing to go over before we jump into the findings is just how we identified STEM graduates, which are the folks that we were interviewing. And for terminal bachelors or associates degree holders, we asked a self-reported question, was your degree in the field of science, technology, engineering, or math? And we included some examples of this, such as computer science, statistics, biology, physics, et cetera. For those who had higher level degrees, masters or PhDs, We asked if any of their degrees were in STEM, and if if so, they qualified to be included in the study. One caveat here, in order to to try to address some misclassification, at the end of these these screening questions, we asked folks to provide their actual degree so we're able to, to get a sense of folks who may have misidentified themselves. And we actually ended up removing about 147 respondents due to this kind of misclassification. For a final total sample size of 1,368. And a lot of the folks we ended up removing were in nursing or those type of degree programs. Quick info about who we talked to, 15% of the sample, some grads were have associate's degrees, half have bachelor's degrees, about a quarter have master's degrees, and 13% of STEM graduates have professional or doctorate degrees. There is a pretty significant gender skew, perhaps not surprisingly, About two-thirds of STEM degree holders are men, about a third, a little bit more than a third are women. Again, pretty consistent with with much of the previous published work on this subject, we find that uh, Hispanic and Black Americans are significantly underrepresented among STEM degree holders. White and Asian Americans are overrepresented. Asian Americans represent 6% of the overall adult population and 14% of all STEM degree holders. And conversely, Hispanics make about 18% of the total U.S. population, but only represent nine percent of STEM graduates. So jumping into some of the main findings, look first at perceptions of the STEM industry and employment priorities among STEM graduates. By far, the interest in the subject matter is the most common consideration that STEM degree holders cite when they explain their reason for selecting their major. And this was true across age groups. We see that, you know, 90% more than 90% of 18 29 year olds and 86% of those 65 and older cited that interest in the subject matter sort of drove their decision making. It's notable, though, that for younger STEM graduates, career opportunities play a significant role in their decision-making. For instance, 64% of young STEM graduates say job opportunities in the field were an important consideration, while only 37% of older STEM graduates said the same. Younger STEM graduates were also far more likely to cite salary and job security considerations when selecting their major. We found that some graduates do not feel that many regrets about their academic decisions. The most common regret was not taking advantage of internship opportunities at their school. About a third said that. Only 20% said that they would have opted for a different major altogether. And 16% said they would have taken more classes outside their major. Importantly, female degree holders are far more likely than male degree holders to cite an interest in choosing an, a different major. About a quarter, one in four female STEM degree holders said this. And there are differences across racial and ethnic groups as well. Asian STEM grads, interestingly enough, are more likely than any other racial or ethnic group to say that, that they regret their major decision. That is, this is one decision that they would revisit if they could. Across the board, STEM graduates generally agree that, that work in the field is interesting. About nine and 10 say that interesting work describes the field at least somewhat well. And there's also widespread agreement that STEM careers are generally well compensated. At the same time, We found that about half of STEM grads say that the feeling of being replaceable is an apt description of work in the field. And close to half say that high turnover and a lack of investment in employees by employers describes the STEM field fairly well. Notably, associates degree holders are far more likely than others to say that STEM workplaces are characterized by turnover. Despite these evident concerns expressed by a significant number of STEM degree holders about work in the field, by and large, we found that they believe the field offers a number of competitive advantages when compared to other career trajectories. STEM grads are much more likely to say that STEM jobs offer opportunities to make a meaningful contribution to society, believe that STEM work is more respected than other careers than not, and offers comparatively better compensation. And we found this is pretty true across Education level, gender, and race and, and ethnicity. Jumping now to workplace experiences and perceptions of problems in, in STEM, one of the interesting things that we found is a sort of considerable disconnect between the perceptions of men and women when it comes to obstacles faced by women in STEM. So majority of female STEM grads say that women face more obstacles in STEM than they do in other careers. But only 34% of male STEM grads say the same. So a pretty significant disconnect there. And notably, 15% of male STEM grads say that women actually face fewer obstacles in STEM than in other careers. There's a similar pattern in views about the difficulties faced by Black Americans in STEM. And we found that more than half of Black, Hispanic, and multi-race STEM grads say that Black people face greater obstacles in STEM than they do in other fields. And again, this is a view held by about half as many white people in STEM. And, and if you're wondering why we didn't break out those other racial groups, it turns out we didn't have a large enough sample. So we had to collapse people who identify as African-American, Hispanic, or multi-race. So again, really significant disconnect between the perceptions of white STEM grads versus others. And what about white people in STEM? Well, across the board, a few STEM grads believe that white people face greater obstacles in this field. But interestingly, we found that few white grads say that they face fewer obstacles in STEM. So they don't believe that they have it easier necessarily. While more than half of black, Hispanic, and multi-race STEM grads express this view. So again, there's a considerable disconnect there. When it comes to just a workplace environment, we found some pretty significant differences, again, along the lines of gender. When it comes to the racial and ethnic composition of STEM workplaces and the gender combination, we found evidence of significant imbalances in these workplaces. Male STEM workers are far more likely to work in places where the majority of their coworkers workers are also men, but the experiences of women are somewhat different. A majority of female STEM workers actually work in offices with large, larger numbers of female coworkers. It's also notable that smaller companies, that's with less than 100 employees, were significantly more likely to have these kinds of gender imbalances with workplaces that were dominated by men. And we found similar patterns when it comes to race and ethnicity in terms of the the composition of workplaces. So this is a really interesting finding, and perhaps it's fodder for for discussion later on because I think there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. But we found that women in STEM are far more likely to get a sense of identity from their job than men. Uh, about six in 10 female STEM workers say that they get a sense of identity from their job. And 40% say that it's just something they, they do. And for for male STEM workers, it's the exact opposite. About six in 10 male STEM workers say that what they do is just their job. And only 40, 42% say it's they get a sense of identity from it. When it comes to things that STEM grads prioritize in a job, there's significantly different perspectives between higher and lower-income workers. Lower-income workers are far more likely to prioritize job security, flexible work hours, positive social relationships, and opportunities to help others and and to get ahead. Among higher-income workers, those making over $150,000 a year, pay and opportunities to work on interesting projects are the two that really stand out and are far more important than anything else. There's also a pretty striking generational gap in views about the skills or experience that is important to succeed in STEM. Younger workers are much less likely to emphasize interpersonal skills, communication skills, and critical thinking. And I think what's really notable here is that older STEM workers are far more likely to prioritize interpersonal skills than analytic ability or computer skills, while younger workers are about as likely to say that interpersonal skills and These analytical abilities in computer skills are about equally important. This is a part where I think there's a lot to unpack here and good fodder for later discussion about why we see this this differences between older and younger STEM workers and and what they're prioritizing here. Lastly, I want to talk about career satisfaction and leaving STEM. This is what Brent alluded to. Previous work has shown a significant amount of, of STEM workers leaving, and we sort of dug into this a little bit to try to understand the reasons why. So overall, more than half of STEM graduates report that they are currently working in the STEM field. About one-third are working elsewhere, are retired or unemployed, and about one in 10, a little more than one in 10 STEM grads never entered the field in the first place. Again, notably, there are significant gender differences here. Fewer than half of female STEM grads are currently working in the STEM field compared to 57% of male STEM grads. Female STEM grads are, are far more likely to have left the field. And we asked a whole slate of questions to try to get under, underneath this to understand why people were, were leaving. And the most common reason that we found for leaving the STEM field is a change in professional interests or family responsibilities. Although we should note that a large minority of respondents said that the feeling undervalued or the lack of advancement opportunities and compensation were in the mix as well. And again, perhaps not surprisingly, there are some significant differences between male and, and female STEM workers. If you look at the reasons that male and female STEM workers who left the field cite for leaving, again, it's a pretty distinct pattern here. Female STEM workers who left were about twice as likely as male STEM workers to cite family responsibilities, which was an impetus for leaving, where male STEM workers were somewhat more likely to say that a change in professional interests was a guiding reason. Notably, too, that the female STEM workers who left were also more likely to say that their contributions were being undervalued and there were fewer opportunities for advancement. We also saw, found some pretty significant differences between white and non-white STEM workers and who, who left the field. And again, we, we had to break these down into these categories just due to sample size considerations. We didn't have a large enough sample to, to break all the non-white groups out separately. Obviously that would have been our preference, but we were, just had some limitations there. But when you look at at the folks who said the lack of on-the-job training was a factor in them leaving STEM, More than a third of non-white STEM workers who left said that this was a major consideration, a major minor consideration, and fewer than one in five white STEM workers who left said that this was an issue for them. Lastly, somewhat of a positive note here: there was there was a lot to chew on in this report. But one question we asked is actually at the end of the survey was, you know, would you simply recommend a STEM career to a young person who is trying to make decisions about academic pursuits and what they want to do afterwards? And as you can see, pretty much across the board, we saw that, that STEM graduates and STEM workers, male, female, white, non-white, all pretty much endorsed this, this idea. They said, yes, that they would still recommend a career in STEM. So with that, I will turn it back over to Brent. Thank you for your time. I hope uh, this leads to a really good and healthy discussion.
0: Well, thanks, Dan. Dan and his team were just instrumental and indispensable in helping us to both design this survey and in helping to analyze the results and doing some interesting work post the survey on regression analyses. And I just want to thank Dan and and Jacqueline and everyone else who contributed to sort of getting this report into final shape. I want to turn now to Dr. Lee and have her talk a bit about how the results of the survey agree with, disagree with, compliment, or otherwise comment upon the survey from her perspective and her research on this topic. Dan and I put a joint op-ed in USA Today a number of weeks ago, and we really highlighted several key aspects of the survey that we thought were especially interesting the differences and some of the challenges as they relate to ethnic minorities, racial minorities, people who got degrees of less than a bachelor's, women in the STEM workforce. And that's kind of where I want to focus our conversation, but I'd like to hear just what kind of popped out for you, Nicole, in looking over the research.
2: Thank you, Brent, for having me. And thank you to Dan for setting that up. And I look forward to having a great conversation with Audrey included as we sort of unpack your results. I mean, I'm actually excited that you went a little deeper in your study compared to what most people do, right? We we kind of already know this narrative that when it comes to the types of disparities that exist in the number of people who are entering STEM from diverse backgrounds, that it's not equal. And it's not necessarily that it's not equal, but I love how you actually frame in the report that when we actually get into those places, we don't stay. And that's for a variety of reasons, which I would love to unpack just real quickly as we jump into this conversation. Let me also say this. Another reason I think that I'm sitting here is I'm a fellow at Arizona State University Center for Gender Equity in STEM for Women and Girls of Color. So I've had a big interest in this for years. I've known Dr. Scott, who runs that center for almost 25 years. And again, this is not a new phenomenon. I mean, the bottom line is the reason why your report is so important, and and I just keep connecting the dots back to what we're going through today, is that we know that robots and automation are going to disrupt the current economic channels. My colleague Andre Perry has written in previous reports that African-Americans in particular will like lose 132,000 jobs as a result of not being equipped to work in these new careers. So what does that mean in terms of the conversations that we probably have had prior to this administration on ways to increase computer science and science, technology, engineering, arts included, sometimes we call it STEAM, and math. Well, the first thing that we know is that we're not representative when it comes to the pipeline that we're actually creating to go into these fields. If you can actually just stay with me for one moment on that, I think it's important to sort of set that argument up. I have an African-American son and I can tell you this from firsthand experience that he was dissuaded from actually being a mathematician or an engineer very early on in the pipeline, beginning in that stage when he was in K through three. We tried again when he got to middle school from six through eight. And there was not a lot of support, not a lot of representation among his faculty. And then we tried again in high school and tried to get him to move into some type of STEM career. And in this particular case, he had a professor who essentially told him, hey, you're really not good at math. I wouldn't really do that. And research has basically demonstrated overall in pipeline that we have to hit kids at all stages. And I share that story. One, I'm a proud parent. He's an English major and he just actually enrolled at College of William & Mary that's not his thing. But I experienced firsthand how important this conversation that we're having is today. Because without having a deliberate conversation on not just the types of programs and funding that we need to invest in African-American and Latina kids in some Asian communities who are not necessarily the model minority when it comes to these careers, we don't really have these conversations around where those bubbles get bursted in terms of the enthusiasm and motivation around these types of careers. We're not going to capture the true essence of The reasons I think that Dan laid out in your study, why we're not seeing higher rates of retention among communities of color, you will be that hidden figure, when that hidden figure becomes visible to that child, to that educator, and to that parent. So I want to kind of stop there, because I know we're going to delve into many of these areas, but I think it's very significant, given that we're moving into a state where digital is becoming the new normal, and we're coming into a state where we're seeing the overlays of systemic inequalities impact education in ways that we've never imagined before. And if we can't get right, and I'm sorry for this plug, The fact that we need kids with devices versus textbooks as we battle through the pandemic, how the heck are we going to get right the fact that we need to invest in our kids for these emerging careers that you both put so eloquently in your paper that have opportunity and hope provided they have a range of other support mechanisms and systems that allow kids to flourish into adults that actually stay within these particular professions.
0: So, I'm going to get off of my (laughs) pulpit. Let me, before we we go to Audrey, I want to follow (laughs) up on this because I think it's easy to get into a discussion about this and focus just on kind of the issues of how it affects individuals, right? How does this affect individuals like your son who weren't encouraged? And those are important. And I'm I'm not downplaying that at all. But there are other issues. Related to the industry itself. Why is diversity important within STEM fields, do you think?
2: You know, it's very important. I mean, I want to reflect on a congressional testimony that I did last year. And one of the people that was actually on the panel was this gentleman, African-American guy who was an engineer at Facebook who, or she may remember, wrote this blog about I had to leave Facebook because it just wasn't a comfortable experience for me. And his story was really not alone. I mean, we know in terms of diversity in these workforces of big tech companies in particular, that they just don't do a good job when it comes to diversity. I think they've been very straightforward about that. Less than two to 3% of the frontline leaders who make hiring decisions are not necessarily people of color. And then when we do get hired, we're in jobs that are support jobs like HR, or we're in jobs that maintain facilities and stuff like that. What I think your report is suggesting is that we need to create these cultures of diversity and inclusivity that allow for people to flourish. And I think what's so interesting that I have to say and push back just a little bit, Brent, that it does start from the age of my son. What we find when people get into these environments, and this is not something that just applies to tech, but more so to tech, because the percentage of African-American undergraduates in science and engineering degrees is about 6%. Right. But the amount of professors that they actually interact with are about 80 percent in terms of them being white. So when you are a person who has that competency and skill as to what you all are arguing and you're in an environment where you have always been seen or portrayed as like the underdog or the minority. It's not just the explicit discrimination that you experience within your job. It's the stuff that we're actually seeing play out on the news. I'm walking my dog in New York City without a leash that's a micro transgression because I'm seen as a threat. I may not come out to the cafeteria and eat with everybody else. So therefore I'm not being friendly. And it's these concepts of how we actually look at why hiring and diversity is so important. It's not just because someone sits at the table. It actually creates the environment that we need to give young people as they evolve in these careers going forward. If you don't, my mom always told me, if you don't see nobody like you, you know, you're going to have to push harder and press harder to either find somebody or bring somebody else along. And I think we just have these cultures where when decisions are made, there are levels of either unconscious bias, and in some cases, what I like to call, it's not really unconscious, it's just not seen that these environments are quite homogenous. And when you place somebody in that situation who has come out of a rigorous program, who has the same skills and capacities, they will opt not to go in that environment nor stay in it, right? Because it is not some place that has created the type of comfort that we expect as adult professionals. So, I think you're completely right in where you guys focus because sometimes people don't understand why certain groups of color do not choose to take these wonderful opportunities to flourish. Or even leave, let's say, D.C. to go out to California to take those opportunities because those support systems are often absent. And those support systems like mentorship and apprenticeships have to start early on to indoctrinate people who may be, you know, on the slim side in terms of representation, how to actually manage and navigate through many of those loopholes.
0: Yeah. And where I was headed with that was. One of the big challenges, of course, is if you aren't at the table and you aren't there shaping the development of the technology, there's an increased chance that the technology is then not going to serve that community well. And we've seen a number of kind of embarrassing Incidents over the last several years of the technology just kind of tripping over itself. And you can just tell that the people that were building the algorithm that were deciding on the data sets that feed that algorithm in the IT sector, this is just one sector of STEM, but because they were a homogenous group, they didn't pick up on the problems of their own thinking. And that's the reason. It's bad for individuals to to be subjected to that kind of blindness that you were talking about, but it's bad for the sector, it's bad for the country if we don't have people with those perspectives in the design, building... And implementation of technology. So,
2: yeah. I mean, if, I can, if I can real quick before, I, I know I don't think we're talking I want to just, if I can, because I'm getting old and I'll forget this part real quick, but you're right on to something, right? Because in the work that I do at Brookings as the director of the Center for Tech Innovation, we look at AI and algorithmic bias is the area in which I work primarily, and To your point, when you think about the things that land up on the front page of the newspaper, oftentimes they land up there because there was nobody in the office that said, you know, that's really not a good idea to use a variable of how much people invest in healthcare as to a determination whether or not they should be eligible for a program addressing chronic disease. You know, that's really not a good idea to rely upon training data that primarily uses European structured faces to determine whether or not you can make them more photogenic. I mean, what that particular app did was it lighten the skin tones of people of color and it slimmed the jawbones because it was based on training data that that particular individual in public notes basically said, I didn't realize that was going to happen. So I completely agree with you. I think as we look at this issue compared to traditional ways that we look at diversity. Diversity matters not just for people sitting in there and having a photo op, but it matters because it makes your product better. It makes the inclusivity and the diversity in design much more appealing to now what is really a base of people that are so varied from us that oftentimes we don't even know who they are, right? Because it's not like you're walking into a store and somebody can deny you service. Your denial of service really can have an impact in the trustworthiness of your products. So I love that you bring that up because I think as a sociologist, I'm finally getting in tune with the economists on these kind of issues because, you know, we've always been far apart. Right. But I think at the end of the day, there's a common denominator to exactly what you said.
0: Okay, Audrey we want to get you in here. I really want to hear your initial kind of fresh reactions to the data that you saw today or that you were able to read in the report and what you think it means for a company like Facebook.
3: Yes, thank you so much. And thanks, Brent, for doing this study. And thanks to Dr. Lee for all her thoughts about how this relates to what we're all facing. I do completely concur that we need diversity of thought at the table, We have full-time product groups that are running and making decisions, and those products are to be developed for a global population of all minorities, races, populations. And if those folks are not at the table in those design efforts, then ideas and thoughts get left behind. So I completely agree with what's been said so far. As far as my thoughts on the study, what I noticed and what popped out to me in particular was the discrepancy between how the underrepresented population feels that they're struggling or reaching certain obstacles or facing certain challenges that the majority population is unaware that this is occurring, right? Something like twice as many women or Blacks feel as if they're facing these obstacles when asked of whites. Is that the case? Oh, no, this we don't see this occurring. And that to me is very striking because that just says in the same environment, people are feeling and facing these microaggressions in front of other people who don't even realize that these are happening. That needs to stop. That need for inclusivity is so important and so paramount. Going and doing the recruiting is one thing, but if you bring people in and then you turn the crank and eventually they are not retained and they move out, then you're just pulling people in and spitting them out a few years later and that's not how you're going to create the best products or create the best environment for people. So. I appreciated that you dug deeper into the data. Usually, you get that firsthand response of, do you feel as if you face challenges? Yes, we do. Okay, what are we going to do about that? Versus, well, do you think these other people are facing challenges? And if they say no, then we really have a a broken system here. So, I do think that it's important that we look and unpack, like since said before, what has to happen so that people are aware that this is going on if allies don't realize now is the time to step up because they don't realize that someone else was feeling uncomfortable, then all the training in the world is not gonna help. So we need to bring to light the situational conversations that people are facing, be very open about what's going on at work so that people can bring their best selves forward, share those ideas, stay in tech, it's got to get beyond the single digits. It's got to be in the double digits so that we don't feel as if we have such a strong minority of Blacks and Latins. I think women are coming along. I think we're starting to see increased percentages of women in technical roles. I know we are seeing that at Facebook. When we release our data, we show that the women in tech numbers are increasing. But of the other races and ethnicities, it's a little bit more stubborn as far as how far we're able to get those numbers to change.
0: So I'm I'm really curious, as was pointed out, you know, this is not a lot of this isn't surprising, right? <laughs> if you're surprised by this, you really haven't been paying attention. So it's not surprising. I know the industry is trying some things. What would you say are the like the most promising kind of emerging strategies or ways that we, you know, can diversify the pool, start to chip away at that blindness that we were talking about? Sort of like, not only do I don't think it's a problem, not even sure that I know that this is going on, which is a a different issue. What are the strategies for industry in terms of trying to address those, just this tremendous disconnect in perceptions? within the workforce?
3: I think we've come a long way in the training aspect. We used to just bring people into a room and talk about bias. Now we talk about how it's unconscious. We don't blame people for these situations. We're just more trying to allow them to uncover and reveal when this happens. So we're talking more about allyship. We're talking more about participation, mentoring, bringing people into the fold in the mix of decision-making. So I think that's one aspect of it. I've also seen a lot more in the way of publicly sharing representation data. This has happened really in the last five years, where companies are publicly sharing. Okay, this is the number that I have, and this is the number what, that I want to get to, and that's going to hold companies accountable for reaching some of these long-term and long-range goals. So, for example, at Facebook we have a 50 and in five initiative. So, in 2019 we announced in five years we want to get to 50 percent underrepresented people. This year, we announced we want to increase the representation of people of color and leadership by 30% in five years. And these are huge numbers to have to reach. It's going to take five years to get there. But at least companies are starting to come forward and say, this is my goal. Hold me accountable for this. And I will make sure internally that we're measuring and that we're allowing for the planning necessary to get those numbers to move in the right direction.
0: Nicole, did you want to jump in on something?
2: No, I mean, I agree with Audrey. I think that we have experienced in this country in the last two months, I think the greatest diversity lesson that any of us could ask for. And we are thankful to George Floyd for being that sacrificial lamb that opened our eyes to just how entrenched Racism and discrimination are. And I think to Audrey's point, it also really, with the companies that wrote checks, I mean, I know with the companies in Silicon Valley, for example, millions were exchanged and offered to organizations that were expressing and advancing causes for people of color. But here's the deal, man you can give the check, but you also have to demonstrate that in your C suite, in your executive rooms, as well as within among your business decision makers and product designers. And let's not just say that everybody who works at a company like Facebook has to be an engineer. There are other jobs that people can do. I'm a sociologist. I talk about science and tech all the time. I sometimes wonder why I talk about science and tech all the time, but I have a seat at the table to talk about it. And I think it's important to Audrey's point that we sort of move away from these traditional models of d which involve sort of these constructed environments of behavior change and realize that we are not coming to work as our authentic selves and I think these last few months have demonstrated what happens when we all have some level of empathy towards the situations of people who are not us and I think if we were able to package that and bring that to places who find nothing wrong in looking around a room and just seeing caucasians or just seeing men You know, we got to figure out how to get past that, because without metrics, and I love the idea. We just did a podcast at Brookings on race and tech with former FC chairman Tom Wheeler and my colleague sociologist Rashawn Ray. And one of the things that they brought up is, could you put together an equity dashboard? or index that could get at some of the things in the report that you're talking about that not just measure numbers, but the quality of the work environment, the ability of adaptation, the commitment to making sure that there's a Rooney rule when it comes to talent identification of women and people of color and people with disabilities. I mean, all of that matters, but unless it's strategic, intentional, and comes with some layers of consequence or incentive, We're going to keep saying, like Orgy said, you know, we're going to bring people together, shame the devil out of them, and then hope that they're going to go back and be different. That's not going to be the case. And I think your report really indicates that as the tech sector and technology generally booms, we have to do better to ensure that our workplaces look very much like
0: our world. So we've talked a lot about the industry, you know, some of the changes that are going on, the changes that are needed new strategies i'm curious about the other end of the pipeline from both of your perspectives what do we need to be doing to develop the talent so that there's more people for the facebooks and the googles and the engineering firms and you know all of that what what do we need to be doing to strengthen the the other end of the talent pipeline from your perspectives we'll start with audrey
3: yeah, I think we we talked a little bit about this earlier, is having to get to students early in their student careers. It's not high school. It's not middle school. It's as soon as science and math becomes part of the school curriculum. That is when students are deciding if they're good at something. That is when they're being encouraged. And then lo and behold, that sets them up on the path for advanced learning, when you go and apply for college and the colleges ask you for math two SAT scores to join their engineering programs, and they ask you if you've taken pre-calc or calculus and you go back and think, well, why haven't I done this? You're tracing back to decisions that were made when you were a child in grade school on whether you were gonna take that advanced math class or the regular math class. And you're trying to make that decision based on what you see coming in the future. And it's very hard to correlate whether or not you want to work harder in math to whether or not you're going to become a computer scientist, an artificial intelligence engineer, a performance engineer, right? All these other wonderful careers that you opted out of because you made a decision early on. So, we have to get to students earlier and we have to show them that what's possible when they work hard and when they go for those areas that they have strong acumen in and and not to be discouraged i was fortunate i had a father that's an engineer i had teachers that pushed me and that led to the opportunities i had in college to select a major but in these other households where there may be the first generation to college or they don't have an opportunity to talk to someone who has a stem career profession and all they see are maybe teachers and doctors and firemen, and they don't know what it means to be a profession that isn't on the street in their day-to-day lives, they are opting out of things they don't realize at a very young age. So, we really need to get to the students as soon as possible, provide them role models, provide them encouragement, bring them into different environments so they can see what it's like to be a STEM professional, and get them excited about their opportunities.
0: That's very well put. And what it reminds me of is that it's the same problem at both ends of the pipeline. The problem of kind of blindness to individuals and their talents that the data of the survey points to by saying, I don't feel valued or I feel like I've got more barriers, that kind of thing. That's the same thing that's going on in these early decision-making processes of kids not being kind of encouraged to surface their interests. And then to have those interests validated and encouraged and nurtured. It's really kind of the same problem. Nicole, did you want to address any of that?
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and I think you know, shameless plug, I'm writing a book on the U.S. digital divide that'll come out next year. And I think we also sort of dismiss the fact that some of these kids do not have technology as like an ordinary average household item. I mean, what we're experiencing today is that we finally figured out that we have an equity concern when it comes to people having the actual tools within the home to explore that. I mean, I was looking at my um, Facebook feed <laughs> not too long ago and just admiring all the photos of friends who have the setup of the big screen for their third grader and the laptop and this, and I'm thinking about unequal disparities of young people who barely grow up with any type of device or a feature phone or may have five siblings and one computer. I mean, we all start there. I mean, I want to speak to what Audrey said. I grew up with my father was an architect and engineer three girls. My mother was a school teacher, but one of the things my mother used to always say to us is I don't like math, I don't do math well. You know, what we speak into kids actually has a lot to do with that in addition to who they hear that coming from. And I can remember growing up and taking statistics in graduate school and sort of psyching myself up to get beyond that narrative. You know, that is not unusual. It's the same thing I experienced with my son. We transfer those values onto our kids, but when we are limited in our ability to resource them well to to allow them to be part of the conversation, you know, that's what we get. I have been part of these conversations with Bishop T.D. Jakes, which is a big mega pastor in Dallas who has been on TV. Oh, and Yeah, he, he just put together a foundation. And in that foundation, he brought together academics and program people. But they actually ran a STEM program this past year three months with kids. And I was surprised to hear that they serviced about 3,000 low-income kids. And what they did was they gave them devices, but they were committed to sort of bridging that digital divide so that kids could actually get online and get what they need out. And they were just excited about the enthusiasm. I mean, I would say, Brian Audrey, I think that the matter of fact is you become what you see and who encourages you and motivates you gets you there. But as Audrey said, those things sort of happen when you're early in development, and when you get to a stage that you are now a professional, the same rules often apply, and we also need companies to also encourage the development of employee resource groups as well, Brent, so that people who have common concerns and interests, like the ones that you identify in your study, can feel that it's okay to convene about those common concerns and interests and talk about those blockades that actually may limit them from sort of reaching the Apex of their career. I always tell people it's almost like if we want people to sit at the table, we have to make a place setting for them. And if we want them to eat, we have to give them the utensils. And if we want them to engage in the conversation, we have to put them in the middle of the table and not at the end or in the overflow. (laughs) And what is unfortunately very typical is that the people that you identified in the study that's where they are. They're on the back end of the table or they're sitting on the small extra table that is the overflow. And they're not in the middle of the conversation. And that applies not just to tech, but all over. I can, you know, attest to that myself. But when people make a place setting for you, it changes the game and it changes the nature of the dialogue. And it also influences the people around you to see you differently. And that's the same thing with women in tech as well. My daughter, just a quick story. She's 13, but she was nine. I made her sign up for this robotics class. She came out there crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, there's only boys in here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to come to this. There's only boys. And now she's probably the best like Fortnite player ever that the boys call her to actually get online right? Because she feels part of the team. And so I think that speaks to what Orgy was also talking about. There are stages. We, we cannot stop at one stage. It continues to be the type of investment that hopefully one day we turn around and say, we should have been doing this all along.
0: So Audrey, I want to give you a chance if you've got something you want to add before I kind of shift us a little bit. So if there's anything that you wanted to add to that part of the conversation, go right ahead.
3: No, I totally agree. I, I remember when my 27-year-old daughter was 13 and she was trying to make those decisions. She did go on to college, graduated as a mechanical engineer, and then had to decide where to do her doctorate, should it be in mechanical engineering or bioengineering, and then discovered the ratio of male to female in mechanical engineering PhD programs. And I'll never forget the day she had been accepted. She had done some desalinization analysis at her undergrad university and had been accepted to a poster session across the country. So excited, went and brought her poster, talked about all of the research that she had done and said to me, no one wanted to talk to me about my research. Everyone wanted my phone number. And I thought, oh my gosh, are (laughs) you (laughs) And and because of that that poster session, she decided she would not get her doctorate in mechanical engineering. It would be all men. She didn't want to be the pioneer. I mean, gave her all the lectures and stories about how it's hard to be the pioneer, but someone's got to be first. And then all these women are going to follow you. No, she wasn't having it. So she then decided to study bioengineering because there's a 50-50 representation. So, I applaud Dr. Lee's daughter for sticking it out and being the only girl in that robotics class, but that is hard to do. It is really hard. And we have to attack it at every point in the career. And in this case, I felt as if, wow, even after she finished undergrad, I lost her into bioengineering. Now, good news, story turns out, she does 3D printing and has to use her scaffolding and her mechanical engineering undergrad for bio because those fields are starting to merge. But at the time, I didn't think that. I just thought, darn it. I wish I'd been at that poster session. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You've been yeah. like, you would have been that mom that said, hey, get away from my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> no phone numbers.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, everybody's got their story, right? And, you know, when I was a kid, I was the youngest of three. I had an older brother, and older sister who were both very talented in the math and sciences. And I don't know that I was actually bad at it but it was hard to compete and so i had to strike out in a different direction and you know you were talking about sort of career limiting choices i made some career limiting choices when i opted out of science and decided to do english and history and social studies and really go into that because i could it was an area where i felt more comfortable and everybody has that story of somebody telling them either you can do it or you know maybe you should think about something else and we don't want to script people either way. We want them to sort of find their natural level, not what we think that their natural level is. So,
2: Can I say something, to Brent, as yeah. well? Because I, I think we often miss this as well. I mean, I think that there are similar concerns in the AAPI community, too, that we often take for granted, right? And a lot of the work that I did prior to Brookings, we do a lot of civil rights and social justice work. And there is this, you know, sort of coin model minority when it comes to Asian-Americans and where they fit within the scale of either the tech sector or the quality of life that I think is still understudied. Right. And not well understood, particularly for kids that may come from Asian cultures that may not be the highest in income or may not have the ability to spend you know countless hours in school. you know what's so wonderful working at a think tank you meet people from all over the world right and I'm always intrigued when we get research assistants that come from all over the world and looking at their different work ethics. but I think that also feeds into this level of trepidation that may also come with the ability of people to fit in. And so as we think about the questions that you raise in your story, it's really important to think that, you know, this is not something that is always Black and Latina, but it also has implications for Asian American communities as they try to figure out how they break through some of the stereotypes that may be attributed to them or find balance, right, when it comes to trying to appeal to be the smartest. I'll never forget, I had a. He just went on to get a professorship at Gallaudet, but I had an Asian American intern from China. And I just remember he would always be in the office like until 10, 12 o'clock in the morning. And you know, for people working at Think Tank, that's like unheard of. You know, we usually shut it down and we go home, have dinner, you know, think about the things we want to write about. And if we're writing at 12 o'clock in the morning, it's probably from some comfortable place that no one knows about, right? Or that our family has let us alone. But, you know, I had a conversation with him and he explained to me the amount of pressure that he had in education to actually make sure he maintained that standard. So I think what's so interesting as these STEM professions evolve, and we see this demand for more people who are skilled in the biomedical, as well as robotics space and automation, or where we're seeing intersections between commerce and robotics, that we're going to have extra pressures on people, right? And so we're going to have in the one hand, historically disadvantaged groups in the United States that are already behind the eight ball when it comes to their exposure to math and science. And then we'll have people who may be immigrants or otherwise that have overexerted aspirations to succeed. And what's so interesting is that we never really hear about those that are predominantly represented outside of you know, women having the same issues, like white men, and where they fit in this, right? So I would love to see like more on, Where they fit. Are there reasons why, you know, they're not part of the solution and maybe they're part of the problem? Are there ways to advance their thinking on this in terms of, you know, the types of pressures that are imposed? is it possible to change the paradigm of the narrative of why it's important to go to a historically black college that graduates 99% of their engineers and take a risk on that school, you know, versus trying to find that kid at Stanford who is one mm-hmm. of two. You yeah. see what I mean? And, and I think that might be as part of your work, like the next stage, which is what I think Audrey mentioned. It's so interesting to see these groups side by side because oftentimes they're isolated by their particular perceived problem. Versus really trying to figure out how is the whole environment sort of contributing to the whole, you know, the bigger issue.
0: We're going to be moving into audience question and answer here in in just a few minutes. It's impossible to have a conversation about anything these days without talking about COVID and the stresses and strains that it's putting on American society in a bunch of different ways. Everything from physical health to the digital divide to remote work to you name it. COVID's changing a lot and it's changing really quickly. You already alluded to this a little bit, Nicole, about this remote learning thing for kids, I think, is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge for everybody. But if you don't have high-speed internet in your house and you don't have three or four laptops laying around, and if you don't have a bunch of the other technology, it's just that much more difficult. Let's dive into that issue a little bit. How COVID is changing things within the tech sector that you see?
3: I think I'm seeing a couple things. On the good side, all these events are becoming virtual. Where people didn't have access to these types of conversations because they physically needed to get somewhere, to get on campus, to get to an event, to to find the funds to travel, That is no longer a requirement. So, for example, before joining Facebook, I worked at a nonprofit that supported women in technical roles, and they run an annual event called the Grace Hopper Celebration, which brings together thousands of women in engineering. It's the largest conference of its kind. But you had to, as a student or as a professional, find the funding to get to a convention center, whether it be in Houston or Orlando or wherever the case may be. That conference is now virtual. And I can imagine how many people who never thought they'd have the chance to go to something like this, they now have access to this type of community and this environment and this information. So I love the fact that COVID has now brought a little bit more of a level playing field in the sense that those who have the technology, but maybe not more of the funds to get to some of these events, they can now participate. On the flip side, what we're seeing is, and in particular for women, there's this double burden of working remotely, which is hard enough because the social circles seem to be more among men. And so trying to break into those is difficult when you're remote. But then also the caregiving associated with having to homeschool your children, having to take care of your elderly parents, having to do all of that additional work because COVID doesn't allow for other people to participate in some of that extra caregiving requirement. And what worries me is the longer this goes, the further behind those people are going to get in their career progression, because they're not going to be able to fully participate given these other demands. And the same goes for underrepresented people. I'm more familiar more with the gender inequalities, but the same goes for underrepresented people who have more challenges that they're trying to balance as they're trying to work. So I see some positives, but then I also see a lot of stress. And I think it's only been about six months. And what will happen is as this elongates and the longer it takes to then go back to what we're familiar with so that we can fully participate, the more likely it is that we're going to see the majority advance at a faster pace than the underrepresented Mm -hmm. people. And that worries
0: me. It's one of the underappreciated impacts. is sort of slowly dawning on us now that yes, the current workforce can do its job pretty fast and effectively and save a lot of commuting time. But that whole idea of kind of the social aspect of work, there's some kinds of communication that can only happen when we're actually physically present with one another. That's especially a problem if you're trying to get started, right? If you're trying to establish yourself in a team, you know, that's hard to do virtually, much harder to do virtually than it is in person where you're having all of this moment-to-moment interaction with people. I can see that becoming a real problem from a diversity standpoint and trying to... You recruit this great candidate, African-American or Hispanic or a woman into your organization, and they never have a chance to acclimate to the culture of the organization to make themselves known broadly within the organization because they're a face on a screen. That's a huge consideration. Nicole, did you want to get in on that question? Yeah, no, I mean, I,
2: I completely agree. I, I mean, obviously, the tech sector is booming. So I, you know, personally know a lot of people who have changed jobs and actually joined tech companies over the, the famine of this pandemic. And you're right. I mean, they're sitting at home sort of trying to figure out where they can get a word in edgewise, given the fact that they have missing the face-to-face interaction. And I do agree with Audrey, based on your personality and, you know, your fit, quote unquote, you probably have a better chance in this type of environment of getting what you need to be done. But on the flip side, again, for people like myself who are parents... There was a lot of blend of expectations and roles, which I think will eventually result in mental health breakdowns like I'm on right now, because I don't know what when is day and when is night and when is weekend and when is weekday, given the, the blending now of the work into the homes. That's a whole other conversation in terms of the values that we have if this continues to go on. But I do want to speak to the digital divide aspect of it, because I think while technology has really demonstrated that it has been the glue. That 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 has kept us together, whether it's using Facebook to get information on COVID-related disease information, or if it's using Facebook to stay in touch with family and friends, or it's following Twitter to make sure you're in tune with what's happening in the world or, you know, staying on Instagram just to get that moment of relief to see people that you love or TikTok, whatever the platform of choice, it's actually allowed us to engage in ways that I think bring some comfort to all of us. But it is very lonely. And that's the title of my book is Digitally Invisible how the internet is creating the new underclass if you're not part of that conversation or discourse or you don't have the tools to be competitive in this environment. The unfortunate thing is if you are a worker who lives in a home, where you don't have broadband access and you didn't really get a computer because your pay scale didn't allow you to be that person that got one to take home, you know, you're in trouble because you're probably going to be trying to run out to the Starbucks or run to your auntie's house and grab their laptop or figure out ways to do things on your phone, which people don't know your struggle. There were teachers, in addition to students, that were sitting in parking lots trying to do lessons when we were in that state of virtual learning. And there will probably be more who still do not have access at home that will have to escape that reality and, and teach kids from, you know, some parking lot near a Starbucks or in front of a school or library. So I think we have to be very careful, particularly as technology has demonstrated its full impact of disruption and the extent to which we will actively engage people, not just as consumers in this, but that will also, and this kind of goes back to your report, will also have the people ready to actually become innovators in this new tech economy. I follow a lot of the diverse startups and, you know, how they're trying to think through questions that they can answer through their technology solutions. Think about it. We have now so much space that unfortunately is showing up in communities because businesses have closed. Will we take that as an opportunity when we finally get to a state of mm-hmm. engagement to repurpose the more vacant land in low-income areas into co-working spaces so that we can get people to be part of the solution and the ecosystem? You know, I always was raised with tech. If you're not the creator, then you're just the product. And so I think what COVID has actually alerted us to is we need to find ways to harness technology with people who have the skills to do so in ways that helps us to solve some of the most pressing concerns and problems of our lifetime. And that seems like the train has left the station on this, and it's only going to go further out. But, you know, I'll share like a statistic that I heard the other day that has just kept me up at night for real. It's suggesting that kids of color, special needs kids who actually don't have access to any type of technology in the home Face the potential challenge of being five to six years behind in their cognitive development simply because they're lacking access to learning. Not this remote, virtual, asynchronous, but they're not in contact with any type of professional that's going to help them gauge their skills going forward. And so those kinds of things I worry about because if we're already in what we're talking about today, if we're already behind in getting young kids of color and poor kids and other kids to the table, What does that look like if they have lost six to two months to a year of math training and learning and cognition that they're able to actually apply to a job? What is that gonna look like if in this country we're not really supportive of summer school and other mechanisms to get kids up ahead? So it's things like that that keep me up when I start thinking about how vast the digital divide is and how less binary it is and how it actually impacts various sectors of our lives.
0: Very interesting. Okay. We're going to go to some questions coming in from Twitter, and we've got one on email that I want to do first. But the question is, it has been pointed out, and I'm not sure by whom, but it has been pointed out that anti-bias training increases resentment among employees that undergo it and reinforces stereotypes. If that is the case, what should be done? Would that affect company performance?
3: Yes, I have seen some of those studies and I can't recall where I saw them, but something about two outcomes that come from requiring anti-bias training. Number one is, oh, I've gone to training. Now I'm not biased anymore. That's number one. Or number two, I don't know why you're making me go to this training. I've never been biased. So, either of those outcomes are not what you want from anti-bias training. So, companies that are looking at how to offer this type of information for those who want it, rather than requiring training, it's optional. It's strongly encouraged. It's something people talk about. You want to go to the class because people are referring to it and you didn't attend, right? So, it becomes part of the environment and the culture to go and learn about what bias means, to understand when to recognize it, and then to understand what to do when you run into it. So, I think that is what we were talking about earlier, about how strategies have shifted a little bit in the training structure. It's no longer a requirement. It's not something you have to do, but it's something that you yourself want to learn more about because of the way the company is operating and embracing this information. So, I do agree that there are ways to do bias training successfully, and there are also ways that have been done in the past where it's backfired and people haven't gotten out of it what we hoped.
2: Yeah. If I could jump onto that too. So when I was in grad school, I used to take a lot of little side hustles. And one of them was to actually do the type of diversity and anti-bias training with Fortune 500 companies, it was my way to pay my rent <laughs> through grad school, which was to take a group of people, take them out to some beautiful hotel resort, give them five days of communication training and you know why it's important to recognize that people are different. And what I've realized as I've gotten much older, because that was almost 20 years ago, that we all make personal conscious decisions to be different. So I recently gave a keynote to a big tech company, about a thousand people. And one of the things that I said is that When we are now in this environment where we're actually having very complicated and very sensitive conversations about race, that is probably the moment in which we will all realize that it was probably okay back then to have complicated and sensitive conversations about race. It's only in those moments where we think that these conversations are divorced from our realities is that's when we actually mess things up the reason why I think young people and particularly young white folks are really interesting to me oftentimes is because they may hear a story and oftentimes when, as researchers, we'll talk about our research. And one day I was talking about my book. And how I'd gone out to a farming community and met with this farming community and how the, you know, this place that I went to, I was probably the only African-American in the whole town. And, you know, I saw Confederates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to the point they were hanging as wallpaper. And, you know, and I was sharing that story. The young woman came up to me. She said, you know, I'm so glad that you said that. She said, because my grandmother lives in a place like that. And as a result of that, I feel like when I go home, we have these conversations now as a person who has, you know, experienced the trauma of racism, et cetera, you know, I am one of those people that's always open to listen and hear. But what I told this young lady is that you need to go back and tell your grandmother because telling me is not going to change the way she feels about things. And I think it's that way of getting people in corporations to understand that these experiences of race are so historically embedded in our culture and they allow us to live these compartmentalized lives where we can go through anti-bias discrimination at work and we can still say things that are very uncomfortable and very unacceptable in our work circles that are personal. And it's until that time that people understand the authenticity of what it is to just be you and to recognize that we're all fallible. We all come with different norms, assumptions, values. That's why I think it's so important to your early question, Brett, about inclusivity in workplaces when we're designing products. We need to have workplaces where it's okay to hear from a sociologist. It's okay to hear from a kid that went to an HBCU. It's okay to hear from a person that went to a private elite liberal school. It's okay because it's that difference that makes us better. and I think that's what has happened over the last decade or so is that particularly in corporations what I've found in my DNI work is that we've contrived these environments and allow people to do things without incentive honestly but to change a behavior that doesn't tie back to the performance overall but it doesn't tie back to the fullness of the experiences of human beings. And we haven't yeah. given people a safe space to be able to have those conversations.
0: I, I think that's very well put. And one thing that I've been thinking about in this regard is that we have sort of different buckets of this problem, right? We have a systemic racism problem in which historical practices are in, are is so embedded that they're invisible. So you've got that problem. You've got a systemic disadvantage problem, which applies to people kind of regardless of race. I mean, if you're coming from Appalachia in this country, you're a white person from Appalachia, you are subject to systemic disadvantage just by the way that you talk. And I think one way of kind of getting at this, really talk about the positive side of systemic difference, that we need those differences. They're not liabilities, they're assets to us as a society. We do need to recognize that there are negative manifestations of these problems. But there's a flip side to that where if we approach it from an asset standpoint, rather than a liability standpoint, we might be actually be able to turn it and make it useful to us. So next question, and this is kind of a question that I like to ask actually on my podcast and when I'm interviewing authors is, what drew you into this issue? Either or both of you, what drew you into the field of STEM, into wanting to reform STEM or work in a you know a corpus, that career question, the vocational question of what brought you into this work. So, that comes from Twitter. Somebody wanted to ask that question.
3: I'll jump in and then Dr. Lee can follow. But like I said earlier, my father was an engineer, but I think what drew me to the profession is I'm a bit of a fighter. And I think you have to have that kind of fighting mentality if you're going to enter a STEM profession. We talked about how high pressure it is. We talked about how rewarding it can be to work on some of these products that billions of people are going to use. So, it's a high-stakes game, in in my opinion, to put all of your intelligence and all of your capability on the line on the job that you love. And that was also in your research. Why do people choose these careers? They love the projects that they work on. And that is absolutely in line with my past story. So, I I was drawn into being strong in math, being strong in science. Both my parents didn't speak English. So, language wasn't really great at home and I couldn't get a lot of help on things like English. So, I think I gravitated naturally to, to the sciences. And then as I pursued those, found that I could get some help, saw some role models and also was fairly good at it. But in addition you're constantly facing some microaggressions as you're a minority trying to approach a career that you are not necessarily welcome or included in. At least that's how it was when I was deciding on my major 30 years ago. So, you have to have a little bit of resilience, tenacity, some stamina for the fight, and you have to be in it and have to want to do that. And so, not to say that it's that bad now, but at the time, it was less common to see people of my background in some of these classes. So, my background is also a Pacific Islander. So, I have a lot of different things going on in, in my heritage. So, I, I do appreciate the challenge. I do appreciate the projects that I've never been worked on before. I like innovating. I like solving problems. And then that kind of led into the career path that I've taken.
0: Boy, that's so fascinating sometimes these stories get told as kind of hero stories. You know, I was so tough and persevered and overcame. We don't have that many heroes in the world. But you do have to have that willingness to persevere against some of these barriers. In fact, I think some of those barriers, when you push through them, you're actually learning so much out of that really benefits you in the longer term. So that's a great story. Nicole, tell us your story.
2: Yeah, no, it's so interesting. So I didn't like math (laughs) and I really didn't like science, but being the child of an engineer architect, as well as a mom who was a a very forceful school teacher, you know, we were told to succeed. So I did. And when I chose the field of sociology, when I was at Colgate university, it was one of those areas that people are like, well, what are you going to do with a sociology degree? Well, you know, fast forward many, many years later, I'm at Brookings. Okay. (laughs) and Sitting next to AI. And so, you know, I think I got into tech to tell you the truth, because One, as a social scientist, we're still trained in a methodological approach to look at society. And our way that we look at society in terms of statistics is really around frames of institutions and people and the intersection of, you know, how these structures sort of all evolve. So when I sit with my engineering computer science friends now as I'm doing more artificial intelligence work, What it suggests is that my range of thinking is as important as theirs. And what drove me to really get to the stage where I sit at now, and I'm one of the few people who work in tech policy who is not a lawyer, was because of this interest in humanity. And I tell students all the time when they ask me, why well, did you go from a sociology degree to a PhD on collective memory of African-Americans to now doing tech policy for over 25 years, specializing in everything from spectrum policy to infrastructure to digital divide to AI? I say, one, because I realized that the inequities that undergirded this evolution of tech needed somebody to deal with that. And so that's how I pushed through. It was very interesting when I first came to D.C. You weren't always asked to be on the panel. A lot of, you know, this brand, a lot of networking things where, you know, people have been around for a while. And, you know, I had great mentors and great leaders. I got to D.C. through former FCC Chairman Michael Powell and former FCC Chairman Bill Kennard, who believed in me. You know, many people along the way I count as mentors and friends who really kept pushing me to keep going in my current Environment, my current immediate boss and the president of Brookings have been equally supportive. I think for my case, much like Audrey, the thing that I wish I could apply to the people that you interview is that you got to stick it out and you got to keep talking to your kitchen table if they're at work or they're not there. There's always someone, even if it's not within your work environment, who's going to encourage you on those days of discouragement. And there will always be someone that sort of puts you back on the path when you feel that you just need to throw your hands up. And I think as a woman of color, a person who has intersectionality, you see it at all levels and stages because you know, tech policy is still very male dominated. But You know, I think like Audrey and probably like you, Brent, it is my responsibility, given what I've gone through, is to bring other people to where I'm at. So I have this full mission that I'm very, very open about, which is at some point I want to retire. And at some point I need somebody younger to do this. And I'm very, very clear with students of color and women, you have to be that person. So I'm very open to calls that come my way and people who want to learn how to get into these spaces. And I keep an open ear And just keep learning along the way. So, you know, I have the same challenges as Audrey. And as you can tell from our personalities, we are not quitters, but it's very easy to be deflated, as you saw in your research, when you just realize just simple things don't really make you feel special or important or it's worth it along the line.
0: It's such a good word on the question of what we do once we advance past the midpoint of our careers, right? We have this duty to spend less of our time promoting ourselves and more of our time promoting others to help bring along in their careers. I agree completely. Second question, what can companies do to address the problems with attrition in the STEM field among female workers? And then what can coworkers do
3: Sure. So, as you mentioned in the opening, I do support the Return to Work program, which is a way that companies can bring women back to work who have decided to take a career break. It's not specifically for women. We're just seeing a large percentage of applicants and participants are women. So, I think what companies need to do is just open the door to different avenues of people to come back into work or to join companies that may have non-traditional backgrounds. The Return to Work program is only one of many programs that we have at Facebook, and other companies have similar programs where we're looking at allowing people to come in to experience the environment, to work alongside the teams, to feel as if this is an impactful career for them, and then mutually decide if a full-time position is warranted. So, I think there are a lot of different ways that companies do this. Summer intern programs are another example where you come in, you have this 12-week experience, and then you decide if the company is right for you just as much as they're deciding if they would like to have you, right? And so, these types of temporary and opportunities for employment are the way I think we can get different people into the office, work with them, and then bring them in full-time.
2: Right. And I I would say also what companies can do when they're, particularly women, allow a woman to call a woman (laughs) and tell them about the experiences that they have. I can tell Mm -hmm. you like, it's been so valuable and I've served in that role as well. When somebody who is the hiring manager says, Hey, do you mind such and such calling you? And can you give them, you know, the scoop on what it's like to be a female at this institution or this job? I think we, we sort of, again, because we're sort of scared of, you know, rubbing people the wrong way, that we forget that those kind of affinity groups, they start before the person comes into the office. And so if you give them that type of comfort that they have the opportunity to ask questions from, you know, where can I get my hair done? Or where's childcare? Or, is the company supportive about X? That actually helps influence the decision of the person who wants to come to the company. And it also creates, I think, a bond with the coworkers because you're sort of not walking in by yourself. You actually have a, an ally, which as I like the way Audrey talks about that once you enter into the
0: door. Okay. So, this will be our last question and we're going to wrap up. What can other students within STEM do to make it more welcoming? I just love that question. You both got huge smiles on right now, but I want to hear what Nicole has to say about that because it does strike me that, again, this isn't always about people in authority. It can be about your colleagues, you know, the people Mm -hmm. at your own level.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'll go back to my son just real quickly. and I'll, I promise to be sure. You know, so he's in his last year. He's in the IB program. He's got math again. And it's like every year with math, it was like between him and I it was like, oh, Lord, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to study? What do I need to do? You know, I, like, I can't be an advocate for you. And so I once was having a conversation with him and I said, why don't you just talk to somebody who's in your class and just see if they could actually be helpful. And I have to say, for people who are trying to figure out how to encourage other people, he ended up getting this wonderful student, it happened to be a woman, who was in his class and they spent time, now that people have the tools that we didn't have when we were growing up, they were able to FaceTime and sort of work through problems and equations. And as a result of that, he aced his math, his last year of IB Math, he got AB+. Plus. And what I was actually thinking is, we need students to do more of that. And part of it is our challenge, too, as parents to take the pressure off of them to just spend the 40 hours of studying and just focusing on themselves. But perhaps we need to say, I encourage you as a community service or I encourage you as a friend to find somebody and just sort of help them think about math and what that looks like. And at the end of the day, I think that for younger generations will be so fulfilling.
3: I love this question. This is such a fantastic question. I also have a son. He's studying mechanical engineering. And what I've said to him is, there are not very many girls in your class. How many girls do you have in your class? Think about how hard this is for them. They don't have as many people to reach out to. Offer your service to help them if you see that they're struggling. What we don't say is when you teach someone, you learn it better yourself because you've done that teaching. So that's number one. But you're not doing this for yourself. You're helping bring somebody else along. You also have much more advantage than a lot of other students. Maybe you need to lend your computer. Maybe you need to you know, provide internet access for someone. Maybe someone had to work three jobs and missed a class and you need to catch them up on a lecture. You don't have some of the circumstances of challenge that these folks are having. Look around you. Don't just be so focused on yourself look around and see how you can help other people at school. And you'd be surprised if you all helped each other, you would all do better in the class. This is not fighting for the curve. This is not trying to beat other people. This is a community effort. We need to do this together. This is the only way we're gonna graduate enough people in these fields with the education that they need to be able to serve the challenges that this nation is facing. It's gonna get rough.
2: Look, Audrey. Not many people can make me be quiet and just want to drop my mic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who else do you want It's so counterintuitive because we're always we're geared for competition, right? We're geared for you know I'm going to climb to the top, and it doesn't matter how many bodies I have to step on to get there. Sort of mentality, and yet we know that when we're in work situations, when we're actually in those situations, we need each other to really put the best kinds of products together, sort of breaking down that sort of competition first and cooperation maybe, I think is something that that we really need to address. I want to thank you both really stimulating, interesting discussion. I'm so glad to be able to connect to you in this conversation. One of the many blessings of technology is to be able to do this kind of thing. So, STEM is a critical issue and it is a critical sector and it's getting more important every day. We need to pay attention to who's working in these sectors to make sure that it serves the broadest possible cross-section of our country. Thank you again for your time. Thank you to the audience for joining us and for asking these great questions. And we look forward to continuing this examination of how to improve educational opportunities for people who are interested in the science, technology, engineering, math, and art field. Again, great being with you, and thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.